0: The people who are really most satisfied with their lives, the number one thing is the quality of one's personal relationships.
1: If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984.
2: where we're going, let reason guide you. See all tracks lead you up from the dark, see all tracks lead you up to the star.
3: Josh, I want to tell you how grateful I am that you agreed to be on the podcast Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. I should let our audience know that Josh and I have actually become friends, a combination of both of us being psychologists, although I haven't worked as a psychologist for 30 years. And Josh, as you heard from his biography, is a professor at Harvard and very renowned We are also friends because we are both working to try to help people living in extreme poverty. I, again, welcome Josh to Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. And Josh, I want to let you know that the central question that this podcast is going to address is the gap between our moral behavior and our professed values. But before we get into that, I really would love it if you would just give a brief overview of your book, Moral Tribes that I found really fascinating. The way I look at it is that it looks at the evolutionary and neuropsychological basis of morality, as well as sociocultural factors. But you can correct me completely in your description since I probably got it all wrong. So please go as slowly as you want and help our listeners know about moral tribes.
0: Uh, well, well, first, I just want to say that it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. The work that you do at The Life You Can Save is, I think, just as important as anything anyone's doing. And so it's great pleasure for me to be part of that. And thanks for, for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to chatting and hearing your thoughts about these things as well. And uh, I think your, your, your insights as a psychologist remain strong. That's been my experience in talking to you about our mutual interests over the years. So you asked me to talk about the main ideas in moral tribes. I guess the way I think of it is, you know, we have this moral dilemma in the modern world. The dilemma is we have these different groups with different values, with different interests, and the question is how do we all get along? For most of human history, when human tribes have been at odds with each other, the solution had been a war of some kind or a displacement of some kind. But you know, here, many of us at least aspire to have a world in which the people of various historical ethnic tribes Live together happily and peacefully. And the challenge is that we have different moral ideals. These have to do, you know, sometimes with familiar kinds of hot button topics, things like abortion and trans rights and gay rights and, you know, the role of people with different characteristics in society. We take it for granted in a place like the United States that women should have, be able to have careers and drive around in cars, and that's not the case everywhere, for example. And then we have different ideals and values when it comes to how resources should be distributed. Some people think it's perfectly fine if an enormous amount of wealth is controlled by a small number of people, while millions or billions of people are in dire poverty. And others of us think that the world would be much better if uh, resources and, and opportunities were more equitably distributed. So the question is, how do we do this? Part of my motivation in Moral Tribes was sort of philosophical, and it's partly practical. The hope would be that we could find a kind of global moral philosophy, a kind of what I call a metamorality, that can help us get along. And I call it a metamorality instead of a morality for the following reasons. So the idea is that for life within a tribe, a first-order morality is what enables otherwise selfish individuals to get along as a group. And the way our basic moral rules are implemented is partly through familiar rules, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill people, don't beat people up. And those are encoded in our social emotions, right? So we have positive feelings like empathy that motivate us to be good to other people, negative feelings like guilt and shame that prevent us from doing bad things. We have positive feelings that motivate other people. You'll have my gratitude if you are a good member of our group. And then negative feelings like righteous anger and maybe even disgust that motivate other people to follow the rules, right? And that can work fairly well within a tribe if everybody's kind of on the same page about what the moral expectations are but then we get into the modern world and we have all of these different moralities competing with each other so you need something one level up a meta morality
3: these different moralities they're competing even within the same tribe like let's just say is a tribe like the united states for example or united kingdom
0: well i use tribe somewhat metaphorically and what i really mean by a tribe is a group that is organized by a set of expectations about the terms of cooperation. So the truth is that many of us, or most of us, especially in the modern world, are members of multiple tribes at multiple layers, right? And we Mm -hmm. can sort of be part of a religious community or a national community or more local communities. Those different moral identities and group memberships can take on different levels of importance, and it may vary from context to context. So it's not as if there's this neat division where everybody is in exactly one first order tribe, and then we can neatly discuss the higher order problem. But those complexities don't change, I think, the fundamental idea, which is that when it comes to life within the tribe, to the extent that we're all part of the same moral culture, we can align on our intuitive sense of right and wrong. But at the meta level, we can't trust our intuitions. It's our intuitions about what's right or what's wrong and who owes what to whom that are exactly what are dividing us at that higher level. So we need to put our intuitions aside and think, okay, well, can there be some higher standard? So in the book, I argue that a philosophy known as utilitarianism, which is a special case of a, a school of thought known as consequentialism, is best understood as a metamorality and is our best hope for having a kind of global moral philosophy. So what what is the idea there? The idea is that whatever tribe you belong to, you want yourself and the people you care about to be happy and to not suffer. And when you look at the things that people care about. If you take anything that someone cares about and say, well, why do you care about that? And you keep asking that question, right? So you say, well, you know, you went to work today. Why'd you do that? Well, to earn money. Well, why do you need money? Well, you know, I need it for things like paying the rent. You're like, well, why do you need to pay the rent? Well, you know, I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to sleep outside. What's wrong with that? Well, it's cold. (laughs) And What's wrong with cold? Well, it's painful. What's wrong with pain? Well, it's just bad, right? That at some point you run out of answers. And when you sort of chase those answers down, they almost always come down to the positive or negative experience of some conscious being. So one of the fundamental insights of, you know, the original utilitarians like John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham was that there's this kind of common currency of experience across people and across groups. And that's insight number one, that there's kind of values behind all of our values. And then the other is this idea that sounds very banal now, but at the time was really quite radical, which is, Everyone's experience counts the same, a kind of radical impartiality that says that your suffering or your happiness is not more important because you're the king, or because you're a man, or maybe not even because you're a human. The suffering of animals, insofar as it's truly suffering, may matter just as much as human suffering, even if humans have other capabilities that animals don't, right? And so the idea is, well, you put those two things together, and you say, well, what ultimately matters in the end is the quality of individuals' experience, their happiness or their suffering. And if you count everybody equally, then you add those things together and you say, well, we should do whatever is going to promote the greatest good, right? That is whatever is going to, you know, minimize suffering and maximize well-being. And that has some enormously far-reaching implications. You know, in, in the days of the original philosophers behind this idea, it urged them to be early proponents of what we now call animal rights and women's rights and to be abolitionists opponents of slavery. Jeremy Bentham was one of the first people to write in favor of what we now call gay rights. And he did it not by being gay or having some kind of personal connection, but he just thought about it and said, this really doesn't make sense. How is this hurting anybody? And he came to the radical conclusion, truly radical at his time, that instead of punishing people for being gay, They should just be allowed to live the life they want to lead. And that was, you know, jumping ahead sort of two centuries in moral thought by being willing to step outside of his moral intuitions and think about the greater good. And then, you know, more recently, your good friend and founder of The Life You Can Save, Peter Singer, had some other very important insights about our responsibilities as people with disposable income in a world in which there are people who are badly in need of food and medicine. And Singer's insight was, again, you know, if, you, if there was someone who was a, a child who was drowning in the pond right in front of you and you could save that child at relatively low cost, don't you have an obligation to save that child? And we all say, yes. Say So then what's the difference between that and all the people around the world who are in similar levels of need, right? So this has been a powerful, although controversial, idea. And in Moral Tribes, what I'm essentially doing is providing a naturalistic account of our moral thinking and our moral feeling, you know, what's common to all of human morality and what are the things that vary culturally, and then what prevents us from having a a more coherent global moral philosophy, and a lot of it is kind of intuitions coming at against each other, and I try to use our, our understanding of human biology and psychology to get underneath those differences and make the case for promoting the greater good. I should say that more recently, I guess I've become somewhat disappointed in the sense that, you know, I wrote this book, it didn't change the world, even though it has some fans.
3: Oh, don't be so modest. It really did. Everything's fine now.
0: <laughs> but, but I've become more interested in trying to apply these ideas rather than kind of offering a sort of intellectual defense that's that's where a lot of my thinking has been been recently
3: let me stop you and ask you a question about intuition do you see because it seems to me that people follow their intuition or what i would call instincts is it okay if i use the word instinct as same as intuition, just for the purposes of this discussion or sure, not? Sure.
0: But with with the following caveat, right? That instinct, when people think instinct, they think of, you know, uh, a, a gazelle was born and is able to stand up, you know, within the first few minutes of life mm. or something like that, where it's innate biological instincts. Whereas the, the intuitions or instincts that I have in mind, you know, obviously have to have some kind of biological basis in terms of their being possible, but they're often most often learned uh or you know that they're shaped very much by experience individual experiences and the experiences that are inculcated through uh, the cultures in which we're enmeshed right so you know it's not innate instinct most of the time okay
3: well i'll use the word intuition then but we'll realize that we're talking about a mix of biological and sociocultural influences that lead to these intuitions. And it sounds like what you're saying is intuitions are much more loaded towards the learned part than the biological part, which is instincts. But I have a reason for asking this, because it seems to me that people's intuitions, are not necessarily leading us to get along. I don't know how I could possibly feel that way in a (laughs) world where there's universal peace and everybody is nice to one another. But somehow I've come to this belief in this old age of mine that in fact, people following their intuitions doesn't really lead to people doing the right thing. Yeah. Either by their neighbors or by their distant neighbors or even for themselves. Like if I have the intuition... And I use the word instinct here, that I wanna have a second piece of cake. I go ahead and have the second piece of yeah. cake, even though maybe my doctor, or in this case, my wife had told me who is my doctor, don't eat that second piece of cake. So a lot of our instincts don't lead us to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything to say about that?
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think there are some people whose behavior is pretty well in line with their values, right? That kind of, you know, your basic first order morality is often about injunctions against doing certain things, right? Don't lie, don't steal. And then to the extent that there are things that you have to do, you're expected to be good to the people in your life, to take care of your family and your friends, to be supportive of the community. And so if you're a good upstanding person within your community and you're, you're doing right by the people you're connected with in the right proportions, and you're not committing any any sins. You can be pretty well in sync, I think, with conventional tribal morality. I think that where there's likely to be a disconnect between people's values and their behavior is, you know, on the one hand, if they're under strained conditions. So, you know, if your best hope of getting out of poverty is to become part of the drug trade, right, then you might end up doing things that, you know, when you go to church, you know are wrong. But, hey, you know, got to survive, right? Or if you have certain kind of higher ideals that are of, of the kind that someone drawn to utilitarian philosophy would have then there's always going to be a gap right there is an episode of of the good place that showed this guy who they described following a term I used in moral tribes called the happiness pump right that you know it was kind of ridiculing the idea of really trying to do as much good as possible right and you know the character in the good place I don't think was trying this in the optimal way but even if you are trying this in the optimal way it's a question of okay well how much money do I have to give away you know should I be pushing myself to the brink of poverty in order to provide life-saving food or medicine or malaria nets to people on the other side of the world so it's there's a tension between the kind of moral philosophy that would say hey look the more the better when it comes to helping other people and the forces that guide our behavior in everyday life, both in terms of you know taking care of our own needs and taking care of the needs of uh, of the people who we're closer to.
3: I'm going to challenge you at the risk of just being demolished here, but let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Let me take some of your colleagues at Harvard okay. or some of the people that were at Harvard when I was at Harvard or my wife was at Harvard. I would challenge the idea that there are they're living fine, upstanding lives. They're not necessarily, in my opinion, living fine, upstanding lives. There is a huge gap between moral behavior and their, their professed values. Some of them were the very architects, for example, when I was in University of the Vietnam War. Many of those Harvard professors actually advised the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration on how to conduct that war which didn't seem to me like living a fine, upstanding life at the time. But even bringing it forward, I don't think that these professors necessarily extend their nice behavior beyond their families and their community particularly well to live in a way that is trying to make the other tribes who are far away a much better place. So I'm, I'm suggesting not to pick on Harvard, because I was only joking, not joking, but I was only having fun with the Harvard thing because it's held in such esteem. But I was saying that I think that there is a real problem between how we most of us live our lives every day and living by a really good moral code, be it utilitarianism, or even if we were Kantians. So I don't know, I guess I'm challenging your notion.
0: Well, yeah. So I mean, I'm, I don't know who you have in mind, like Henry Kissinger or someone like that.
3: Well, Samuel Huntington was the person I actually... Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think th- those are unusual cases, <laughs> not your typical affluent Westerner, let's say, but I think your point is well taken that many of us are willing to accept or complicit in some way in practices that are extraordinarily harmful, right? And I think, you know, one of the challenges in modern life is... It's extremely complicated to figure out, like, of all the products that I buy, which of them are being produced by companies using terrible labor practices. And then even if it is companies that are using what we would consider terrible labor practices here, is it actually better on balance to buy those things because it's the first step on a ladder towards a world in in which those practices are better? And I think a lot of it is there's so much complexity behind you know, the apparently simple choices that we're making.
3: But I'm not even thinking of things that are complex. I'm thinking of the fact that people, and this is going back to how I saw the, the moral tribes, that within tribe, yeah. the people are generally very nice, generally, yeah. to the people that they perceive as similar to themselves or part of their tribe, but their ability to go out of their way to help people who need to be helped, um, who like to give money, um, to those people, or just reach out beyond their tribes. Yeah. Like, for example, I could think of about five wars that are going on right now that are really creating desperate number of refugees right. and famine. Yeah. And most people, even the wonderful professors at Harvard, aren't doing a whole lot about
0: that. Well, myself included. I mean,
3: well, I don't think that's true, but we'll just leave it. We'll leave that for the time being.
0: I, I think you know the question is what what motivates people, right? I mean, I think most people today still want, in some sense, a lot of the same things that people have wanted for hundreds or thousands of years. right? I mean, first people want to have their basic needs taken care of for themselves and the individuals they care about. And then, you know, beyond that, they want to engage in relatively enjoyable activities at least if if the you know they want the, the work that they do at least not to be backbreaking labor and if you can have a kind of career that's enjoyable or fulfilling then people like that all the more people want to have the esteem of their friends and the people in their their communities whether it's their personal communities their churches their right and right now we're not strongly incentivized to do things that may be extremely important and doable morally, but your friends are not going to shun you, for the most part, if you are failing to use your resources to make war less likely Or if, you know, I mean, most circles, if you're not a vegan, for example, you know, or you eat factory farm meat regularly, it's viewed as a personal choice, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the solution to say, okay, well, let's make it not a personal choice, right? I mean, that can backfire in a big way, right? But I think, I guess the general answer is that the sort of social forces that shape our lives push us to be pretty good but not nearly as good as we could be. And that's probably true, regardless of what more sort of exacting philosophical standard of value you choose to apply.
2: I remember being incredibly ill years ago. My temperature was 40 degrees. That's 104 for those who may need a Fahrenheit conversion. I was so heavily congested that when I coughed, I would struggle to catch my breath. My bank account was in the negative, so there was no money for doctors and medication. I had no gas left in my car, and all I had left to eat was yogurt. The fear and helplessness that I felt in that moment was very real. I'm incredibly grateful to say that situations like this are no longer a reality for me, but there are millions of people living in situations that are far worse than the experience I just described. Hi, my name is Stacey Black. I'm a deputy director at an organization called The Life You Can Save. We provide donors with a vetted list of charities that are proven to be highly effective in helping people living in extreme poverty. To view a list of these charities, to receive a free book, or assistance in making a donation, please visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.
3: So what I was thinking of is the girl in the pond that Peter Singer talks about, that all of us, if we were passing a pond we would save the girl, even if it cost us our expensive suit of clothes, and we'd be late right. for a very important appointment. We mostly all would jump in, okay? Because that person, it seems to me to yeah. use your language, and maybe I'm wrong, is part of our tribe at that point. Yeah. There's they're, And they're right there, and the suffering is manifest. But as Peter points out, there are girls in the pond all over the place. I mean, I'm not just talking about the 5 million children that die every year of preventable illness or largely preventable illness. But I'm talking about all of the people who are suffering. And what I'm saying is every day we go about our lives. And I do, I mean, I'm not holding myself up to a different standard. We go about our lives essentially ignoring or suppressing our doing anything about that in favor of doing something for our own tribe. Is as we define it. And so I do think I'm challenging because I do think there is a huge gap between our moral behavior, and I include myself and Peter Singer even in that, but we can get into that when I talk to Peter, but there's a huge gap in our moral behavior and our professed values. And it doesn't cause, to use a psychological term, a lot of dissonance most of the time. I don't know what you have to say about that, or maybe you just disagree with me.
0: No, I mean, I I agree with you, but I guess there are two things here, right? One is, one way you might fall short of that ideal is because you you hold the ideal but fail to live up to it. And another way you might fall short is that you don't even hold that ideal, right? And I think most people don't hold that ideal in the sense that they say it's great if you do that, but it's not required, it's not necessary. And, and, And if you were to favor distant strangers even to a modest extent over your own children your own friends your own family then then you're kind of morally lacking in a way i mean i i know plenty of yeah philosophy I, professors I who would say you, you know you're being great along this one dimension but you are not being a good whole moral human right and I'm, i don't agree with that but i think that that's that's much closer to common sense right yeah. so then of course the where does that common sense come from well we evolved both biologically and culturally for life in relatively small groups right and certainly not for for universal cooperation so i think that we're we are up against biological and cultural evolution in trying to expand the circle beyond kith and kin or at even the next level of People who are bound together by some kind of symbolic relationship, like, you know, being a member of the same church.
3: That's a a great segue into a concept you bring up in Moral Tribes. So you talk about moving up the evolutionary ladder and kicking it away. It's the kicking it away part we may be talking about now, but can you explain for our audience what you mean by moving up the evolutionary ladder and what you mean by kicking it away? Because I think it relates very much to what we're just talking about.
0: Yeah. So, so why do we have, what is morality and why do we have it at all? Right. So I view morality as a suite of psychological adaptations that enable us to reap the benefits of cooperation. It's essentially our minds are wired for teamwork and that can be teamwork in, in a very sort of, you know, at the level of the family, or it can be with specific individuals in a reciprocal altruism way. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Or with larger groups, you know, it's not necessarily that I help you and then you help me, but I contribute to the group and, the, and others in the group give back to me, right? But all of that capacity and all of the emotions that go with that, again, feelings of Goodwill and feelings of awe and feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment and all of those social emotions are ultimately emotional carrots and sticks that enable us and enable others to be good cooperators. But the reason why we are good cooperators is because cooperation, because teamwork, is a powerful weapon. Right? It enables some of us to outcompete others of us. Right? The only the only way something can evolve biologically is if the individuals who have those traits survive and the other ones don't right so you know even though we're talking about cooperation the the evolutionary currency is still the same as it is for everything else which is death some survive and others don't right so by definition cooperation cannot evolve for cooperation that's universal cooperation that's universal cooperation cannot evolve because that's not about competition at the highest level right then the question is can we take those cooperative instincts that we developed for competing with other groups and apply them universally? And I think the answer is that it's hard, but it's not necessarily impossible. The example I often give in a different domain is birth control, right? So, you know, we have evolved to pass on our genes, and part of that evolutionary process has been having desires and interests that make us want to engage in reproductive behavior, We also have big brains that are good at cleverly solving problems, including ones that, you know, Mother Nature never could have anticipated. And it happens that in humans, humans got to the point where they said, you know, we like having sex, but we don't necessarily want to have more than, you know, one, two, three children or zero children. So we use our big, clever brains to invent things like birth control pills. And now we have evolution kind of outsmarting itself, right? That evolution gave us this general reasoning capacity to satisfy our desires, and our goals, using clever methods. And we came up with a clever method that actually thwarts the most basic evolutionary goal, which is to produce more babies, to make more copies of yourself. My hope is that in the same way, we can say, well, we evolved for competition among groups which is why we have cooperation within groups but we can use our big clever brains to get what's going on and to invent a kind of new social technology that is in some ways analogous to the physical or material or biological technology of of birth control pills that is we can say all right we're going to use our knowledge and our skills to promote universal cooperation and universal regard even though that is not <laughs> what what our social instincts evolve to do. And so I, I guess you know that in some ways is what I see as, is one way of describing what I see as my life's work, which is you know trying to figure out how do we expand the circle of cooperation and altruism so that we can all live together and live well even if that's not, what we evolved biologically and in many ways culturally to do.
3: So this is the kicking it away part, really, like the
0: development of the birth
3: control pill is kind of the kicking it away. So now it's about how do we kick away this this evolutionary ladder, if you will, in more domains than just one that was obvious to do, like birth control. And I guess what I'm suggesting here is there's just a huge amount of work to do in kicking away the ladder. We've done it in a few areas, but I still think we leave a huge gap between what would be ideal and, and what we're actually engaged
0: in. Yeah. Yeah. So well, maybe this is a good point to mention a couple of projects.
3: Yeah. Mention, mention projects for sure. Yeah. I do want to come back to this question of kicking away the evolutionary ladder, because I think... It's not just a project, it's not just important for the development of more intertribal agreement or world peace, but it actually comes into play for individuals. And I, for example, we have certain what I would call instincts, maybe we're using the word intuitions, which lead us to destructive behaviors for ourselves
0: mm-hmm.
3: because we're sort of biologically prone. To do things that give us immediate gratification,
0: mm-hmm. right?
3: You had a colleague. It wasn't your colleague because he was probably dead by the time you got to Harvard. But Skinner, who talked B.F. Skinner, who talked a lot about how we get reinforced for these immediate behaviors that are either negatively reinforcing, meaning they move remove an aversive state, or they're positively reinforcing because they give us pleasure. Right. And so I think that. This kicking away the evolutionary ladder is relevant to a lot of individual behavior that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. But I did want to bring it up for our audiences that we're not, in my opinion, just falling short of living by our professed values, myself included. And I now am a really good example of this also, but we're living in a way that we don't live the healthiest lifestyle just for ourselves and our immediate surroundings because of these same instincts that lead us to be very oriented towards the short term as opposed to long term. Just a different way of looking at it, I guess. Does that make any sense to you, Josh?
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think a lot of our sort of personal unhappiness can be traced to getting stuck in an evolutionary rut in the modern world, right? People's, um, you know, So the most obvious examples are things like drugs and alcohol or overeating in a world of abundant, uh, you know, sweet <laughs> foods, right, that our ancestors never would have had access to. But also, you know, more subtle things, right, That the things that really make us most happy, the people who are really most satisfied with their lives, the number one thing is the quality of one's personal relationships. And, you know, if if you're a ambitious person with well, there's always another professional opportunity, you may just keep, you know, pushing and pushing on that treadmill and, you know, realize at some point, wait a second, like the most important things in my life have gone by because I was so busy sort of chasing those very tempting rewards in one's work life, right? So...
3: Or it could be material things too. Yeah, right. I mean, you talked about the, we didn't talk about the hedonic treadmill, but that could be driven by some of these same i call them instincts or intuition right
0: i mean i think yeah it's it's material things and i also think even behind the material things it's it's status right mm-hmm. there are plenty of people who live much better than the royalty of past centuries who don't feel like it's enough because they're always looking at the person down the street or down the hall at the office who's who's got a little bit more and it is it is a challenge to learn to be happy with what one has despite having so much.
3: Well, I, I do want to comment for the audience that, Josh, that you've managed, and I don't I don't mean to be patting you on the back, but you've managed to be, I look from the outside looks like a very available <laughs> father and husband at the same time that you've built this quite an, uh, impressive career at Harvard. And now moving on to things that are much more applied, that are near and dear to, to my heart and that really touch on perhaps you getting closer to living your own values, yeah. which weren't just to become a famous academic, but probably extended far beyond that. Yeah. So it would be a good time. We have a few more minutes now. Let's talk a little bit about how you're moving from this successful academic career and now trying also, I didn't say instead of, but also to build this applied mechanism.
0: Yeah, Oh uh, well, thanks. Well, I, I feel obliged to say that I don't think i've always been the best father and husband better post-tenure than pre well i have to
3: talk to andrea about that or get your kids on the
0: podcast (laughs) you know one of the things i've been thinking about for a while is is charitable giving and as you know you know the most effective charities can be a hundred or even a thousand times more effective than typical charities right that um you know for example to take an an example from toby ord you could spend fifty thousand dollars training a guide dog for a blind person in a wealthy country like the united states or you could spend $50 to $100 on surgery for someone in another country that would prevent them from going blind due to trachoma. And, in, you know, of course, it's not that we should not take care of blind people in wealthy countries. But if you have the opportunity you know, to serve 100 or 1,000 people with the same money that it would cost to help one person here, it's hard to say that it's not worthwhile to... Spend some of your resources where it goes farther and not just like 50% farther or a hundred percent farther But you know a hundred times or a thousand times farther So except that
3: they're not in our tribe, right? Well, that's
0: indeed part of the challenge, right? So how do you meet that challenge? So Lucius Caviola a fantastic researcher has been a postdoc in my lab You know, we said instead of trying to convince people with drowning child type arguments, which is how I was convinced So, you know, I know disparagement there. We said well, what if you just say to people, hey, you know, give to where you like, but what about also, in addition, giving to highly effective charities? And we did some experiments where we asked people to make us, we said, well, you, could, you have three choices. You can give everything to this charity that you chose, everything to the super effective charity that we recommend, or split 50-50. And we found that if you add that 50-50 option, more money goes to the super effective charity than if it's just all or nothing to one place or the other. And we did a bit of research on the psychology of that, and the basic idea is, it seems to be that when people have a personal charity that they want to support, it's really just, they have an itch that they want to scratch, but it doesn't matter if you give half or if you give all of it to that. The 50-50 split allows you to kind of, you know, feel like you've given something to the thing you care about, but then you also get this additional satisfaction of supporting something that's super duper effective. And so we found people like this, we found they liked it even more when you offered them money on top to support both donations, and we found that people were also, many of them were willing to pay into a fund that would support matching funds for other people. So we put all these things together after testing them in the lab, created this website called Giving Multiplier, which does exactly this, you pick a charity of your own, you pick a super effective charity of the kind that's supported by The Life You Can Save, And then you decide how much you want to give and how to divide it. And depending on how you do that, the website adds money on top to both. And then people have the option to support that matching fund. And to make a long story short, we've been doing this for about two years. We've raised coming up on $2 million, which is not a huge amount in the world of philanthropy, but one thing that's interesting about this is this has been done on a, on a shoestring budget of you know way less than $50,000, and the whole thing has been self-sustaining. That is just ordinary donors supporting the matching fund that, that encourages more people to donate. So we've been excited about that and are looking to scale this up, and that's kind of my first foray into trying to build a, a social impact product. Yeah, so, so far, so good.
3: Well, I want to say that I think Giving Multiplier has enormous potential, and Josh knows that because I keep telling him that. And I hope that everybody listening will go to the website of Giving Multiplier and look at it and think about its potential values. And to me, it's an opportunity for people to come closer to living their values because, in fact, most of us would say we do care about people living in other tribes, We do care about the value of human life, even if it's not the girl in the pond right in front of us, but it could be the girl in the pond or the refugee camp very far away. And I think organizations like Giving Multiplier, and of course, I Feel the Life You Can Save as well, um, are really looking at some of those questions that most of us don't really want to think about all the time, because we don't want to become, I've been reading about Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. We don't want to become somebody who gives up everything we've got and puts ourselves in the very position of the people we're trying to help. I have a host more questions for Josh, and I'm hoping that people will subscribe to the podcast so they not only can hear the other guests we're coming up, but also can hear Josh's answer to those questions as well. So, please do subscribe and please do come back and listen to Josh when I ask him more challenging questions like how to live a moral life or what does he think a moral life is? What does he mean by personal best? And various other questions that I'd like to ask, but I know that I'm running out of time. Before we end, Josh, do you have anything you want to say before I make you come back and be a guest again?
0: Oh, well, no need to twist my arm. It, it is a great delight and pleasure to be here. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for having me on.
3: Me too. And thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and to Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about The Life You Can Save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.